Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up next week, our first premium episode will be a populism special. We'll be looking in depth and profiling two recent presidential candidates. Vivek Ramaswamy is ranking just behind Ron DeSantis in the US Republican primaries. He wants to abolish the Department of Education, among others. And then Javier Millet, who's leading the Argentinian presidential primaries. He only wants to change the national currency to the US dollar. We'll be discussing the merits of the two and what the world would look like if either succeeded. The 2016 populist wave was meant to be the apex of something after all, a bloodletting, a pressure release. But seven years on, are we in fact witnessing a new era of extreme mega ultra populism? Go to Patreon, search for Multipolarity the Podcast and sign up to access the full version of the episode next week Thursday. But now, coming up this week. The financial press has been aflutter with news of an upcoming Chinese economic plummet. It's certainly exciting, and it'd be even more exciting if it were true. We explain how the analysts got this one wrong, again. At the same time, the BRICS are meeting in Johannesburg, a conference so historically important that South Africans may even keep the electricity on for it. More importantly, a range of new members are being lined up, which would lift the club's overall value from 32% to 45% of global GDP, a leap from merely significant to actively powerful. So who gets to be in the 21st century's geopolitical groucho club? Down in old San Fran, real estate's doom loop deepens by the day. But don't worry, the city has unveiled a 10-year plan to get back to approximately where they were in 2016. What are the implications of this flagship tech city turning from Apple into Atari? And have we kept the box? But first, China bubble trouble. This past, I'd say, two weeks, really, but it's really heated up in the past week uh, at the time of recording. There's a lot of talk about, you know, the Chinese economy hitting the wall and it being terrible. And I mean, you're almost getting, you know, kind of vibes that it's going to collapse or something like this. Um I mean, we'll talk about it a bit further, but it's it's very odd. I think that's that's one of the reasons we probably wanted to talk about it on the show. Um, it does, I mean, probably some context is helpful. Um, there has been some indications that the Chinese uh, boom that was supposed to emerge after the uh, lockdowns were lifted there hasn't really emerged. Now, that's debatable. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. But um, it hasn't gone according to how Western analysts, I guess, thought it would go. Now, um, I don't think we addressed it on the show, but I've I've written a few things about it. Um, and basically the kind of, I think the kind of factual take on it is that, yeah, the Chinese economy, probably the manufacturing sector didn't open up as well as it was supposed to after the lockdowns were lifted. But we were really talking about a, a slightly minor disappointment there was nothing particularly scary going on. 
um, you know, it was just a, a couple of misses on GDP growth. I guess, I guess, in addition to that, the GDP growth for China maybe had been a bit overhyped because the rest of the world was doing doing so poorly. It was stagnant. Maybe there was some hope that um, the IMF forecasts that they were putting out would lead to this kind of rush of Chinese growth that might pull some other parts of the world out of the stag- stagnation. But once again, I mean, the you really are only talking about missing it by a few points. We can go into the specifics in a moment. But but it, it's it, so four weeks ago, I would say, or five or six weeks ago, I think people were having a relatively rational discussion about China. Um, they were highlighting, you know, the newspapers were highlight the financial newspapers were highlighting um, uh, these slightly missed growth targets, growth targets, and all this. Um, you know, you'd occasionally see some stuff about a small amount of capital was uh, being withdrawn from China that had, had piled into the country after the lockdowns uh, were lifted. But it's yeah, it's been in the past two weeks really um, that. The narrative is built as if the Chinese economy is falling apart. People aren't just talking about, for example, the growth numbers. Um, there's been recent articles on the decline in the value of the the yuan, the Chinese currency, on how the People's uh, Bank of China, the central bank, is is panicking, and and the government are talking about closing down capital flows and all this kind of thing. I mean, there are you know, capital flows are closed anyway in China, and this is a pretty regular thing for them to to monkey with their capital controls. So I I think I think that's the sense that 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 for some reason in the past week or two uh people have stopped looking at the actual facts on the ground about what's going on in China and they've started kind of projecting this enormous collapse. Um as I said we can get into the details in a moment but I'll just give one figure um uh before I I kind of hand off to you that um, in quarter one of this year, the Chinese economy grew at an annual rate of 4.5% a year. In quarter two, it grew at 6.3% a year. Now, those are the only two quarters we have data for. Um, their growth target is 5% a year. So in the current quarter, they're above their growth target. In the last quarter, they missed it by 0.5% by 50 basis points. And I just ran some quick numbers before the show, and uh, I found that the growth rate would have to fall to 3.6 for the next two quarters just to miss the 5% growth target by 0.5%. There's no reason to think it's going to fall to 3.6 in the next two quarters. So by all accounts, what you would say if you're looking at that data and you're projecting forward, if you're a Wall Street analyst or something, is China's probably either going to hit its growth target or it's going to miss it by a very, very small amount. So, I mean, that's just the headline numbers. We can talk about some of the other stuff, but the the whole thing's been very strange, but it's really picked up pace in the past week. I've been a little bit puzzled by this myself, actually, because like you and perhaps like many of our listeners, this idea that China is going to collapse has really gone mainstream this last week or maybe two, but certainly in the last week, my my Twitter feed or x.com feed, as we should say now, is absolutely packed with tweets or, or, or posts talking about how why China's collapsing, like opinion articles, uh, tweet threads, um, theories as to why it's all happening. Um, we have the fated, uh, fettered uh, Adam Tooze, uh, the establishment econ 
world's uh, kind of substack of choice, I suppose, uh, Adam Tuzer's chart book. And he has posted a big substack uh, trying to explore whether the Adam Posen, Posen theory of uh, Chinese collapse, i.e. that it's based on a kind of uh, the, the, the limits of an authoritarian system is correct, or whether the the the, the Pettis theory uh, that it's basically about uh, trade flows and a kind of a deformed economy um, is correct. Nowhere in any of this do I see the actual evidence that the Chinese economy is collapsing. I know that's going to sound strange because everywhere it says it is, but I don't actually see it in the numbers. I saw the last quarter's GDP figures were over 6%. Perhaps you can say that those figures are untrustworthy. A lot of people do. I don't know. But if we're saying that they're untrustworthy now and really the economy's collapsing, why weren't we saying that they were untrustworthy a year and a half ago and the economy was collapsing when things were doing even worse? Or, or, or three years before that, why weren't we saying the economy was collapsing then? It just seems really weird. It, it, it just seems to have been one of those things that have gathered a... A, a, a force all of their own. I'm, I'm, I'm quite willing to accept that the economy might be in serious trouble, but apart from you know really pretty poor housing figures, which to me I, I always assumed was a policy choice of China's. Like I, as I understood it, like Xi a, a, a while back said that they were going to deflate the housing bubble. So it seems to be something that they're deliberately doing rather than a collapse. Like I don't see uh, any serious issues with this. Uh, David Goldman, who is the, an extremely good writer on um, uh, issue, you know, Far East Asian issues, um, said that he downloaded like 153 or 145 or something. So like 150 metrics or thereabouts. And he couldn't see any evidence of an economic collapse on the way. Um, I'm quite willing to accept the idea that um, perhaps an authoritarian country like China, I think it's reasonable to say China is not a liberal democracy. The Chinese would not claim to be. Um, I'm quite willing to accept the theory that that might put limits on growth. I'm not sure there's any evidence for that, but I'm willing to accept the theory. I certainly agree with Pettis that you know China's current account surplus or its trade surplus really is going to have to be balanced eventually if the economy is going to continue growing or or it's going to be a sound economy. You know, they're going to have to move somewhere toward a balanced uh, current account and uh, and uh, trade account. But I see no, just I, I, I just don't see the hard numbers in front of me that say, look, the Chinese economy is collapsing. Like, where are they? I don't know. I, like, everyone tells me it is. They just kind of assert it and move on to why it, it it just seems really strange. I don't know if you can. I mean, you're the economist, Philip. Can you at least perhaps steel man this argument? I think the strongest case that they had in recent weeks was something to do with the renminbi, with the yuan falling in value. But you referenced David Goldman's tweet, and he showed the yuan is falling in value at the same time as the Japanese yen is falling in value. And the reason is you you can see it in a correlation standard FX correlation that it's um, due to the uh, ra rising interest rates in America. Interest rates are going up in America. They're not going up in China. They're going up slower. 
very slow in Japan or not at all. And so you have uh, what's called the carry trade and the carry trade's reversing and and the currency goes down. I mean, this is just standard, you know, uh, currencies fluctuate with interest rates. So, I mean, that, I guess, was the most credible signal that was something was happening. As we've already said, GDP is growing last quarter 6.3% a year, which is above their growth target. Now, it missed the um, the analyst growth, expected growth target of 7.3%. But what does that mean? That's just a bunch of Western analysts putting together a growth figure. It means absolutely nothing. They're above target rate. I mean, just for listeners, by the way, like... You know, companies like Bloomberg and sometimes Reuters and, uh, you know, other sources, they survey macroeconomists and they'll say things like, you know, what do you expect third quarter GDP in Britain to be next time around or, or second quarter GDP in China or whatever it is? And then they take the kind of the average of all these. And, and, and you know, it'll be analysts from Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, as, uh, as well as less well-known kind of research houses and investment banks. But it's essentially a mean average of, of what all of these analysts think. And, um, you know, it, it might set market expectations, right? So the, you know, these analysts kind of say, right, the market expects X. So it kind of disappointed the market, but, you know, 6.3% or whatever it is that, I would love Britain to grow, the British economy to grow at 6.3%. I think even a lot of emerging economies would like that. So that sounds strange, right? Yeah. And the, and the analyst expectation, the previous one, um, the, the economy actually outperformed. So it's just, but none of this is particularly interesting. This is just the usual back and forth of silly analyst expectations and data not meeting it and the usual day to day drama of Wall Street chart gazing, right? It's not interesting in any way. There's been no, it it hasn't been like Wall Street said, oh, we expect a 7.3 growth rate and it came in at minus five. Okay, then you have something like, whoa, something big's happening, right? Nothing big's happening. It's just noise. It's all just noise. And so the other thing is- I'm sorry to keep interrupting here, but as a kind of a layman, I'm just interested. So two things here. First of all, I know it's inflation in China is really low, which is very unusual for an emerging economy, right? And it, maybe people think that China being at like 0.2% or 1% inflation, it, it kind of suggests they might be going into the into the Japan mode of, of kind of constantly teetering on the brink of deflation, which tends to be bad for economic growth. The other question I would have for you is that, so traditionally I've seen loads of, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, loads of what they call proxy metrics for Chinese GDP. So it's like when you don't trust the GDP figures, you look for other figures that you do trust to try to produce a composite that gives you an idea of where GDP really is at. Now, one of the things that they used for that in the past was electricity usage, right? But I've seen nothing this time to suggest that electricity usage is down and points towards the fact that you know, real GDP growth was like minus 0.3%, not 6.3, right? So those two things like inflation and maybe proxy metrics, have, have you got any ideas on that? Well, I haven't seen any. It's as you say. Yeah, I right. mean, I haven't, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't gone and run them myself, but if somebody wants to make the case that China's collapsing and every, newspa- every financial newspaper and outlet is saying it, you'd think somebody would produce uh, the electricity measure. It's called the Li Kuang index so i probably haven't pronounced that right um and you you mix in a couple of different r- rolling stock uh, railway activity all this kind of thing 
Um, and it usually tracks the GDP figure, which actually says that the GDP figure is somewhat reliable, um, even though it gets a bad rap. In terms of the inflation numbers, um, I mean, I don't know why it matters that you have low inflation rates if your economy is growing. From what I know, from what I can tell, the main reason the inflation's uh, currently in kind of slightly deflation mode is because of uh, falls in food prices and energy prices um, due to recent dynamics, which we're, we're pretty aware of. We know them in the West. And, and so I'm just looking at it here that core consumer prices, which exclude f- food and energy, are rising at 0.8% a year. Not very high, but, you know, 1% inflation, okay. And inflation numbers don't mean that much anyway. I mean, you need to show some sort of deflation with stagnant economic growth or something like that. So none of this stuff's on the on the on the plate on the plate. And as with you, I'm perfectly open to something bad happening in the Chinese economy. I think the economy is kind of unbalanced, as Pettis says. I don't think that it's unsustainable in the way that he thinks it is. But you know, I'm totally open minded about it. I will note that um, we had a China scare uh, twice before. Um, in my memory, um, since w- working in, in the sector. The first one was in 2015, and that was where I kind of cut my teeth. The 2015 scare was actually quite real in that the Chinese property market looked like it was about to collapse. Prices dipped an awful lot, investment dried up and so on. And if you see this in a Western economy, as we are actually seeing in the Western economies now, you go, whoop. China uh, housing bubbles burst because housing markets tend to when they start going down they tend to go right down they don't they don't move around like stock markets do but after 2015 the government juiced the housing market and everything got back to normal again and that was the lesson that I learned from that that I said okay we can't treat this as a western economy as you say the government have policy control over the housing market so be careful about applying pure free market logic or you know regulated free market or whatever we have in the west with this kind of semi semi-control economy so i i took a lesson from that but the 2015 scare i think was reasonable because we hadn't seen a property dip before in china and so it was reasonable to assume that it was going to drag the economy down with it now we had a second scare in 2021 and that was Evergrande. I don't know if people re- uh, recall, but Evergrande was one of the largest property companies in China. And I think it was either experiencing difficulties at the time or it was about to go bankrupt at the time. That time, I don't think it was as forgivable. First of all, you've got one data point, a single company experiencing difficulties. That's very different from a, 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 the housing metrics tumbling. Second of all, we'd lived through 2015 at that stage. Any Anyone who learns from experience would have known housing market doesn't work quite the same way in China as it does here. We'd better be careful with that. And so this time around, though, I don't I think the Evergrande's in the news again, but you know, <laughs> it was in the news two years ago. So we're on our third China scare, but this one definitely seems the least rational. I'll say one more thing that the Chinese Central Bank came out um, on Monday uh, of this week as, as we're recording. And it was, um, you know, all the Western analysts had hyped themselves up and they said, oh, they're going to have to slash rates to insanely low levels to counteract the the doom and despair that we've projected onto China. And they came out and they didn't lower the mortgage rate at all. They lowered the loan rate or whatever it's called by 10 basis points, which is, I mean, China do kind of jitter with it more than we do, but that's very, very low, obviously. I mean, we see kind of 25 basis points, 50 basis point moves in the West. So the Chinese central bank don't seem to care that much. I think they're going... 
I mean, from the way they're behaving, they're like, yeah, everything's kind of fine and we're not going to try and juice the housing market quite yet. So there's just this bizarre disconnect, but I can't really see this lasting much longer. Either something's got to happen or, you know, something big's got to happen and somebody's got to produce some real data points or another social media hysteria will burn itself out, will be my guess. Bricks by bricks. It's bricks week. We can be um, flippant about it, but history books probably will record this as being a very important moment. Maybe not of the of the caliber of Bretton Woods in 1944, but it might be up there. So obviously the bricks, we talk about it on the podcast all, all the time, that they're becoming more assertive. They're growing in number. All this chatter that's been going on around the BRICS has been, in a sense, leading up to this event, which is the BRICS summit that's taking place in Johannesburg, South Africa. We'll probably end up doing a second round on the BRICS conference because we'll probably know there'll probably be a surprise before the end of it or, or something like that. But even on the first day, we found out quite a bit. It's been really interesting. So just to run through some of the kind of headlines that have come out that uh, are immediately relevant and have cleared up certain things that people have been speculating about. First thing, BRICS Bank, uh, run by former uh, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. Uh, Rousseff came out, made no indications that they're focusing for the moment on a BRICS currency. Now, that may change later in the week. We'll see. But there was no talk about that. But what she said was that the BRICS Bank wants to beef up lending to the BRICS members, but not in dollars. So they want to do these uh, these forms of lending specifically to reduce the reliance of, of the dollar. And she cited that they didn't want to get locked into these dollar repayment cycles that many developing countries have seen themselves locked into in the past. They announced that there were 15 new applicants for the BRICS lending program. And finally, she said, which is very interesting, that the BRICS Bank wants to wants to act like the IMF and the World Bank in that it's this kind of global lender, but it doesn't want to attach conditionality to it. That's going to be a big deal because conditionality has only been increasing through time. I saw when I posted this, somebody commented on it that apparently Ghana had been denied a loan over its anti-LGBT laws, for example. Now, I think they're quite grotesque. They're, I think they're capital punishment. So it's not quite uh, you know the woke gone mad. But still, attaching conditional uh, conditionality to these loans that aren't based on economic logic, I mean, we've seen that becoming increasingly aggressive. So lack of conditionality is going to be a big selling point for that. We saw that there were rumors coming out that Brazilian officials had leaked to, I think, Reuters, that the large amount of countries that had applied to join the BRICS, I might may get it wrong, I think it was 22, the country that was most concerned about uh, membership was Brazil. And I think the chatter around it was basically that was Brazil was worried that it would lose influence or something like this. Now, this runs completely contrary to what the Brazilian president has been saying. So I, I would say take that with a grain of salt. It might be a, a negotiating tactic going into the meetings. You leak, you leak that to the press. You say, oh, we're a bit concerned about this. And then, you know, you get to put your concerns on the table uh, more loudly. Some of the press ran some interesting uh, coverage of the BRICS. One thing that was shown that I thought was really interesting, so we've covered on the podcast before, the BRICS are now in their current iteration larger than the G7. So they're about, they make up about 32% of purchasing power parity adjusted GDP in the world to the G7's 30. Now, the really interesting thing is if the new members join, 
they will go from 32% of global GDP to 45% of global GDP. That's a big leap. So that's a 50% jump if these new members join. I had not seen those figures before. The whole conference seems to be messaging that the big agenda item is to figure out a way to dump the dollar. They've been very, very specific about that. So it wasn't just Dilma Rousseff saying that they do these loans. That's a concrete manifestation. But the whole chatter around the whole summit so far has been de-dollarization. One of the things I think it's important to do with uh, BRICS and this BRICS summit is separate the BRICS, the nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, from BRICS, the organization. The, the nations have their... Um, their own economic development models, their own uh, geostrategic interests, their own uh, international relations policies, and they act individually and sometimes bilaterally and multilaterally with each other on a whole range of different areas. The BRICS, as in the organization, BRICS without the definite article, is an organization a bit like the G7, something like that. It is a, a forum through which these countries who, in theory, have a shared standing within the world order at the moment, uh, can engage in productive uh, communications and diplomacy, essentially. It's not an alliance. It doesn't have a policy. It doesn't have a strategic aim, if you like. It's literally that. In the same way that the, you know, the G7 doesn't have a policy, but the EU does. Okay. That shows the difference between the two organizations and it gives you a better idea of what BRICS is. Now, I get the feeling that sometimes in the press that I read, which, you know, of course is, you know, primarily British and American. That there's this sense that the, you know, the BRICS is some kind of anti-Western alliance. I think that is really the wrong way about it. Of course, Russia and increasingly China are quite anti-Western in their outlook or, or overtly so in, in the case of the former. But BRICS, the organization is and BRICS is, you know, no more anti-China than the G7 is pro-privatization just because it's got Britain and America in it, right? It's, I, it, I think we need to, draw that line. And I think that would also give listeners a, a more realistic expectation of what's going to happen at this meeting. The second thing I would say, though, is that all of these countries do have a certain shared interest in that. And certainly the prospective countries that are interested in joining have a shared interest. And that's they're part of a global South that really, you know, since the Second World War, but more obviously, more blatantly, since the end of the Cold War, have been excluded from a lot of the the global dis- or, or the diplomacy or the fora in which big global decisions are made and the rules of the the current global order are set, and they have an interest in, in in trying to find a voice. And one of the ways that they might find a voice is together by you know joining an expanded BRICS and uh, and trying to make that voice heard as part of the global South. And a lot of these countries, of course. You know, Russia, China, India are obviously very powerful. Brazil is as well. People might not realize, but it's a huge country and it's a tremendous natural resources exporter and it has a growing economy um, and a huge trade surplus at the moment as well. Uh, countries like Indonesia who are interested in, join, in, in joining Saudi Arabia, um, 
these are all countries with a great deal of economic clout. Now, specifically on the things that you mentioned there, I think it's quite clear that all of the items that you mentioned on the agenda, whether it be the kind of conditions that are uh, imposed on IMF loans, increasingly expanding into the social sphere, uh, and also the you know also the diplomatic sphere as well, like are you friends with China? Are you friends with Russia? Uh, and also the dollar effect or the, or the dollar's influence on the world economy. I think all of these things are in the interest of the global south. And I think one of the things that listeners can do is they can look at the sort of issues and problems that the global south has had traditionally over a very long period of time and then apply that to the sort of things that BRICS might want and they'll be pretty close to the sort of things that BRICS will look at. For instance, IMF loans have been long been a bugbear of the global south because IMF loans come with a, a, a very preset economic prescription that countries must impose on their nations in exchange for the loan. And that economic prescription is quite onerous. And I think, to be very generous, it's got a mixed record of success. Likewise with the dollar, with the dollar being a kind of a hegemonic currency that has all kinds of influ- effects on uh, emerging economies, especially when US interest rates shoot up as they have done recently and dollar liquidity is drained from the global market. Or the fact that they have to sell stuff to get dollars to buy stuff. You know, that's that's a big issue for these countries. So both of these things are, are, are very, I mean, this isn't a kind of like an anti-American process. This should be really seen as the, as probably, arguably, but I think probably the five most powerful nations of what we might call the global south, the emerging world, getting together to find greater voice and try to influence the course of world events. It's not really kind of anti-anything or providing a kind of an alternative to anything. And I think that as it expands, it'll be something similar, and we'll see traditional global south issues addressed at these meetings. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's very important for Westerners to understand this, because you know when we start looking at these numbers, whether it's the current BRICS members being larger than the G7 or the potential members making up nearly half the global economy, we're going to have to work within this world. And to start seeing it in black and white, positive, negative, enemy, friend terms could end up being very self-destructive for us which is the more I look at kind of the newspaper headlines and stuff, the more I, I obviously worry about that and we talk about these issues on the podcast. I will say I agree with you. I don't think this is some sort of anti-Western alliance per se, but at the same time, as you say, they are going to be addressing concerns that are close to the hearts of the global south. There is a little bit of, um, it does feel like they're taking a little bit of a victory lap here and saying, finally, we're out from under the hegemony of the dollar, the IMF, and so on. Some of that is probably um, slightly misplaced. Um, some of these countries do have a tendency to blame their domestic problems on the kind of you know American-led order um, when you know some of their problems are really just internal. But as you say. IMF has had a very mixed record in terms of its success with its, as again, you say, very rigid program. And definitely dollar lending has not gone well for multiple countries. So I think there is a little bit of a snubbing the nose here. Um, But it's not, as you say, it's not the snubbing the nose of 
I'm rebelling against you, I want to destroy you. It's snubbing the nose like, well, I'm big enough now. I'm a big boy now. You 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 could push me around, you know, you were the adult in the room, you were you were the senior person in the room. But now we've emerged as serious powers of our own. And we don't have to just do what you say. That is a challenge to the West, but it's not a threatening challenge per se. I'm more and more so worry that we are turning it into that. I mean, I think it's just worth noting that I kind of looked at, you know, many of the headlines that were coming out that weren't just straight news reporting. And most of them have been pretty negative uh, in the Western press anyway. So Washington Post has China's awkward power play at the BRICS summit in South Africa. They're trying to make it out that this is some attempt, you know, nefarious attempt by China to take over the world when really the summit doesn't look anything like that. Another one of them is, you know, Reuters BRICS divisions reemerge ahead of critical expansion debate. This is a very common trope about the BRICS thing that these guys are so primitive in their diplomacy that they can't figure out how to work together on <laughs> with each other on things, or some notion that you have to all be really tight friends in order to work together on trade issues or economic. It's, none of it makes much sense to me. But I did notice the New York Times actually ran a, a relatively um, positive spun headline saying BRICS meeting attracts global interest not seen in years. And that kind of got me thinking I think it's actually going to, as people understand more about what's happening with the BRICS and the emergence on its own terms of the global South, it's going to be very interesting to see how the narratives develop around that. Because, you know, I think the kind of general, shall we call it centrist, possibly slightly left liberal take on the rest of the world is that we'd kind of like to see people pick themselves up. By their bootstraps and and solve global poverty in their own areas. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see if if Western leaders do decide to turn the new BRICS Plus alliance into a bogeyman. How exactly are you going to sell this to your audience? I mean, are you going to come out and explicitly say they should be doing what we tell them in a kind of almost paternalistic Victorian uh, manner? Um, I don't think that even has a lot of purchase these days on the right, much less on the left. But, you know, most people will have gone to college and if they did a humanities degree, they'll have done something, whether it in history or sociology, on colonization and decolonization. Some of this stuff's like really radical and out there. But some of it is just an account of, you know, <laughs> the subordination of the third world or whatever. And I just wonder, like, if, if the BRICS kind of are just going to stand on their own two feet and say... This is what we're doing. And then Western uh, leaders want to dig in and say, this is an evil empire that's coming to eat us. It'd be really interesting to see how they how they sell that. And, and the New York Times headline, when I read the article and it was it was it was somewhat optimistic, I thought, hmm, I wonder, I wonder, is this actually saleable to the average New York Times reader? I think you can sell them on, you know, Putin's an aggressor in Ukraine. Maybe you can sell them on the Chinese are getting very aggressive around little Taiwan. The global South is picking itself up by its own bootstraps and we don't like it. That seems like it might be harder to sell the average uh, American liberal on, frankly. Two things that I would uh, say about that is, you know, the first of all, they are solving some of the issues that the global South have had. Um, you know, we mentioned things like the conditions that come with IMF loans, that's going to be even more of an issue if the IMF is going to try to impose social issues on countries in sub-Saharan Africa, which are 
very deeply conservative. Like if you think that Viktor Orban's government in, you know, in, in, in Hungary is far right, then, you know, the, the, you know, the government in uh, Uganda, you know, somewhere, you know, out, out beyond Mars, right? It's like these countries are very deeply conservative. I don't condone them. I would not like to live in such a country, but those are, you know, fairly representative of the average person's views. Okay. So it, it, that's going to be an even bigger issue. Now, if you're going to try to provide an alternative for that, it's not overtly anti-West. You, you know, you're not taking that step because you're anti-West and you want to kind of destroy or usurp the IMF somehow. What you're doing is you're kind of providing a solution to the problem. But to be frank, by very definition, it's kind of anti-Western. It's a bit like taxation on smoking is a kind of a tax on the poor. You're not really trying to tax the poor. It, it, it's just the fact that more poor people smoke than rich people. Right, that's just a fact. But nobody would call cigarette taxes an anti-poor tax. They would cause it, you know, call it a, a kind of an effort to improve the health of a nation. And I think in the same way that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't view, um, you know, the expansion or the, or the development of alternatives to IMF development programs or IMF uh, bailout programs as overtly anti-Western. Now, getting back to my original point that. You know, countries like Russia and China and Brazil all have their own agendas and all have their own national interests. They might view that as a byproduct as, yeah, this is, would that be actually a great way of kind of cracking Western hegemony, which is trying to surround us as they see it. But, you know, I think we need to have a kind of a flexible mind about these sort of things and not just, you know, not just assume that anything that doesn't toe the line or, or doesn't take the Washington consensus on economics or doesn't view the current system of globalization as perfect or doesn't view American foreign policy as the ideal way of running the world or, do, or, or doesn't view liberal democracy as something that should be, you know, expanded aggressively around the world. Like, you know, these things aren't necessarily uh, overtly anti-Western or anti-American. We need to have a flexible mind here. On the second point, diplomacy and alliances and all that kind of thing. I think in the West, we're quite parochial about the way that we look at this. We remember the Cold War when the world was divided into two very distinct blocks. If you were a member of the Warsaw Pact, you were also a member of Comintern. You were also very much under the leadership of the Kremlin. Okay. If you're a member of the European Union or the European Coal and Steel Board, as it was, you were also likely a member of NATO, and you were also very much under the foreign policy leadership of Washington. Since the end of the Cold War, you've had an expansion of that Western uh, global order uh, into Eastern Europe and increasingly into places in Southeast Asia as well. That is not the only way to run diplomacy. Like when you're agreeing on most things, you have pretty much the same economic system. You have pretty much the same culture and system of government. And you really run things and, and, and attend the same diplomatic fora and military fora and all of the rest of that. That's actually pretty unusual throughout history. It was a great triumph of American diplomacy that they managed to establish this system after the Second World War. But that's not the only way of doing things. And, and actually, that's not the usual way of doing things in the world. You don't have to agree on everything to get things done. You can take, if, you, if you're skillful, if you've got a strong idea of your national interests, 
You can take a very transactional view of the world, or you can be friendly generally, but disagree on one or two other things. Like you, you know, you don't have to be all in married for 20 years and, you know, have the occasional bicker and fall out, but generally it's a happy marriage to be able to get things done diplomatically. If you aren't going to San Francisco. This week, I was looking at the US housing market, although I wasn't looking at the market overall or the data, but two stories crossed my smartphone that really made me jolt and have a serious think and and, and remember back to some of the rather worrying expectations we've had for the US housing market in the past on multipolarity. The first thing I saw was a good friend of the podcast sent me a video on YouTube of a, a US network news broadcast in which a reporter went to look around the main commercial center of San Francisco. Now, listeners will probably know that San Francisco has for years been one of the hottest markets in the United States for real estate and for housing and for office space, driven mainly by the boom in Silicon Valley and venture capital and all of these things that are well known. The place was absolutely dead. And uh, and when I say dead, I don't mean the usual kind of shock videos of San Francisco that we see of 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 like mass homelessness and tent cities and and people who are clearly out of their minds on drugs or have serious mental disorders. I don't mean that. I mean like a very nice city center, uh clean, seems fairly new, but just nobody there. Nobody there at all. Uh the the reporter who was um, who was uh, leading this uh, big report on network news went into a a transport interchange where kind of light rail brings people from the the suburbs and the satellite towns into San Francisco Center. Um, uh, you know, an amazing big transport interchange of the sort that we would see in a British city. He was the only person in there, and it was rush hour. I mean, it's just astonishing. They they were interviewing uh, former tenants who said that. Uh, they're now being allowed in on, uh, you know, without paying rent, just on a share of their whatever revenue that they make. There were stories of landlords now giving space away for free for charities and non-government organizations to, to try desperately to generate some footfall. And the interesting thing about this report is it was saying all of this positively. It, it, it was saying that the mayor, who it, it spoke to quite glowingly and, and threw lots of softballs, the mayor, um, who's called London Breed, interestingly, you know, is really doing a great job. She's she, she's starting a a ten year program to bring life into San Francisco city center. I was like, whoa, hang on a second. This was, as I said at the beginning, one of the hottest city center real estate markets in America until very recently. And now, you know, we're looking around, and it looks like something from a zombie movie where the whole world has disappeared. And there's only like two or three people left on planet Earth. And we're, to- and we're praising the mayor for putting in place a program that's going to take a decade to bring back some life to this. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff. I also then saw a story from the New York Post, which said 160 investment firms with a combined $1 trillion of assets under management are leaving New York City and moving elsewhere, mostly to Florida, but also to places like uh, Texas as well. And of course, you know, New York is one of those cities that works on agglomeration effects. You, you know, you have the investment banks, you have the retail banks, you have the hedge funds, the pension funds, 
you also have all of the kind of associated businesses like legal and marketing and PR that feed into that. And you get these wonderful agglomeration effects that makes Wall Street the kind of powerhouse that it is. And it seems that increasingly that, you know, they're leaving for sunnier climes perhaps, but also because they don't want to pay the Manhattan taxes perhaps, or because of crime issues, as we've seen in, in, in San Francisco more, it's become coming less and less livable, even as it becomes more and more expensive to live there. And I just thought these two little instances, of course, it's, it's qualitative rather than quantitative research that I've done here, really suggest a very bad time for the US real estate market. Yeah, we've covered this a little bit before. Um, I saw the New York Post story saying um, that $1 trillion or just under $1 trillion of money was leaving New York City. This included big hedge funds like Carl Icahn's hedge fund and so on. I think there's a couple of causes. I mean, when we did the episode on the on the end of the city before, we we mainly focused on the um, work from home phenomenon together with overvalued property prices. And I think these are still very big drivers. But now that we're talking about the kind of broader, almost sociological issues, I think crime is 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 really up there, which affects the US far more than Europe. And in Europe, we saw crime go down during the pandemic, but it actually got a lot worse in the United States. Crime has gotten completely out of control, really, in the United States, especially in the cities. Now, if you Google it today, they'll tell you that the the murder rates are coming down in 2023, and they are uh, relative to 2022 and 2021, when I believe they peaked in 2021. But they're still, you know, 25% higher than they were in 2019. Um, and you know, as you say, qualitatively, there's there's a lot of stories that even if you're not seeing it in the in the murder rate, well, you are seeing it in the murder rate, but even it, it's not captured in the murder rate, the deterioration of living standards in some of these cities. They seem to be be getting worse and worse. And of course, that's that's um that's being coupled with well, first of all, the work from home phenomenon that we talked about, but. Also, the, the U.S. real estate market just seems to me to be in slow motion decline. Um, I saw that there were some positive numbers out on the house prices there a few weeks ago. But the reality is that in April and May, which are the, the two latest data points we have, we see the first annual declines, that is year on year declines in, um, in national house prices in the U.S. since well, since last time the housing market collapses, the data shows that once you get negative numbers on year-on-year growth, it tends to be the beginning of a collapse. Now, maybe maybe this time it'll be different, but it strongly suggests lending is falling across the board to commercial, to real estate. And then today it came out that US existing home sales are now at their lowest rate since 2010. And if you look at the actual graph of that, it looks like they're crashing, basically. And and the reason for this is pretty obvious, rising interest rates. So you've massively overvalued market. We did some stuff on the housing market last week. Massively overvalued market. Interest rates go up. No one could, can afford to buy at those prices. Prices have to adjust downwards. All of these things are hitting cities at once. And uh, especially in America, I mean, we don't quite have the same crime problem here. Although, one of the issues that will affect here as well as America is, we referred to it last time in our housing episode, uh, the the urban doom loop, as it's become known, that if people move out um, and buildings lay idle, especially buildings lay idle, that um, tax revenues will drive up. 
And even if you don't have these crazy crime rates like they have in the United States, you'll still have a marked decline in living standards as the services deteriorate. Uh, as the tax revenues fall and you don't even need i mean the tax revenues will be even worse with a mass exodus but you don't even need the mass exodus to start the process because a lot of cities derive a good portion of their tax from uh from uh commercial commercial property really from the taxes on these commercial properties so once they go down in value or they're not occupied at full uh, full rates, vacancy rates start to rise and so on, the tax revenues will start to go down anyway. Then, of course, the services start to deteriorate, you see an exodus, and then boom, you've got Detroit, basically. I mean, that's the worst case scenario that you get somewhere like Detroit, but I mean, that's that's effectively what happens. And then if you get to that level, you, you know, the city will get stuck there. Search for Multipolarity of the Podcast on Patreon and be among the first to help us chart the rise of the new multipolar world order.